Hi everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're gonna be completing our grunge series by talking about Soundgarden. Oh, I'm so excited. So there's a lot about Soundgarden that I didn't really know about, and it's quite interesting to learn about Chris Cornell's backstory too, because there is quite a sad story behind what he goes through as a child. Yeah, it's quite interesting if you don't really know the whole story. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump on right into it. So Chris was born Christopher John Boyle on July 20th, 1964 in Seattle, Washington. His parents, Edward Boyle, was a pharmacist and Karen Cornell was an accountant and a self-proclaimed psychic, which is different. His parents divorced as a teen, and him and his siblings adopted their mom's last name, Cornell, from here on out. So similar to Eddie Vedder, where he adopted his mom's last name, too. Chris was one of five other siblings. He had two older brothers and three younger sisters. And him and his sister, uh, they went to Catholic school, and his mother actually pulled him out of school. Apparently, he was about to be expelled for asking too many questions, which that makes sense to me. I mean, as a kid... I can relate to this, honestly. When I was going to CCD classes, um, I was asking a lot of questions. And I was asking, well, why, 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 why? You know, and they don't like when you ask them questions about, you know, oh, how dare you question, you know, the Bible? And how dare you question this, that, and the other? And so if that really was the case where he was asking a lot of questions and just trying to get information and figure it out for himself, yeah, fair enough. That, that makes sense to me. His early influences were Little Richard and the Beatles, and he spent a few years listening to the Beatles records that he found in one of his neighbor's basements. So he was really into going through record collections of his neighbors and his families and kind of just looking through the music, seeing what inspired him. Part of what makes his background really sad was his father was verbally and physically abusive. To deal with that kind of environment as a kid and with what he went through in the future, uh, in his childhood a little bit later down the road makes it even that much worse. But so going back to his musical influences and looking through these records, he really made it a point to look for really obscure records to get inspiration. He really wasn't a fan of like the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin at the time, which is really quite different to a lot of other people because when you look at other musicians and who some of their big influences are, they cite like Led Zeppelin as one of them. And he just really wasn't into that. He was really looking for that kind of diamond in the rough or that kind of needle in the haystack that would be just obscure enough to give him that bit of an edge with his music. And that's what I like about him. He did say that he really liked Pink Floyd and he was really drawn to Sid Barrett's lyrics. So that makes a lot of sense looking at what he's written in Soundgarden and in Audio Slave, and then comparing that to his influences as a child. That makes a lot of sense. So Chris was trying to find himself at this point in time in his life. He was dealing with an abusive father. He was pulled out of school and he felt like a loner because a lot of the kids in his neighborhood were kind of older than him because this was around the time of like that baby boom era. And so he was kind of young in the neighborhood. And so he didn't really have a lot of kids his age to play with and to make friends with. So he would have to resort to hanging out with the really older kids. And so he described himself as being a loner at around this time in his younger teens. And he developed a severe depression and he dropped out of high school 
and he became kind of reclusive. He never left his house because he felt so alone. When you feel that alone and you feel that depressed and you feel like no one can relate to you, as a troubled teen, it's so easy to turn to drugs and alcohol, and that's exactly what he did. He described having experiences with LSD, weed, psychedelic mushrooms, and prescription drugs. He said that he took them every day by age 13, and then at about 14, he stopped for a year with those drugs. But at 14, this was when he experimented with PCP. And according to him, he had a really traumatic experience with PCP to where he suffered from panic attacks and agoraphobia, which is a fear of open spaces, for the rest of his life. Now, I personally have never done drugs. I've never done hard drugs. I've never done recreational drugs like that. I have no idea what kind of severe effect that that could impede on a young developing mind. Because when you're young, your brain is still in development. And so when you experiment with drugs like that, that can fuck you up mentally, that can have severe damage later on as an adult. And so I feel bad that he had those experiences and felt like he had to turn to drugs to deal with his life. That's absolutely horrible. And then obviously because of that experience with PCP, he became even more inward focused and became even more isolated. It was at this period of isolation where he really, really, really turned to music as a crutch in his life. A quote that Chris said about this experience with PCP is, quote, It's not like you go to your dad or your doctor and say, yeah, I smoked PCP and I'm having a bad time. So I became more or less agoraphobic because I'd have flashbacks. From 14 to 16, I didn't have any friends. I stayed home most of the time. Up till then, life was pretty great. I never did any drugs until my late 20s. Unfortunately, being a child of two alcoholics, I started drinking a lot, and that's what eventually got me back into drugs. You often hear that pot leads to harder drugs, but I think alcohol is what leads you to everything because it takes away the fear. The worst drug experimentation I ever did was because I was drunk and didn't care. So even though he was struggling with these panic attacks and his agoraphobia, and his isolation, he was able to deal with his anxieties around other people through rock music. He said that his mom saved his life, actually, when she bought him a snare drum, and it was a stepping stone into his future music ventures. And then I believe around this point in time, he saved up enough money to buy himself a full drum kit. So drums re were really what Chris was going after. He wasn't even really considering doing vocals or being a singer or a frontman for a band. He really just wanted to be ingrained in some band in some way, and music was his saving grace. And so drums at that time were what he was going after. Before he became successful with his music, he worked on a couple uh, various part-time jobs while he was starting on his music ventures. One of these part-time jobs actually was working as a sous chef at a seafood restaurant in Seattle. And so he joined a couple of bands in the area, but he really wasn't enjoying the music that they were making at all. He was playing the drums mainly, and he hoped one day to form his own band that he was actually proud of. And so this is where Soundgarden will come into play. So at this point in time, Chris was in a cover band called The Shemps, with feature bassist for Soundgarden Hiro Yamamoto. They performed around Seattle, but eventually Hiro left the band. 
and then they brought on future Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thiel. Kim moved to Seattle from Park Forest, Illinois with Hero and Bruce Pavitt. And Bruce actually would later go on to create the Sub Pop record label. And I've mentioned Sub Pop before with the other grunge bands. This is kind of where Sub Pop came from. So, you know, the Shemps, they eventually broke up. But Chris and Hero, they kept in touch. And when they started jamming together, they brought back Kim into the band. So these three guys actually formed Soundgarden in 1984. And apparently they named themselves Soundgarden after a wind-channeling pipe sculpture named a Soundgarden. And so like I said, right, Chris originally was playing the drums, and he was actually incorporating some singing with his drums. But they brought on Scott Soundquist to play the drums for Chris to actually concentrate on just doing the vocals. Their first actual venture into music together was recording 15 songs on a four-track cassette in a makeshift studio in the house that they all lived in together. This demo tape would become known as The First 15, and then they made their first ever debut show on December 21st, 1984. And this is another name that you guys will probably most likely remember. I talked about her in the other um, grunge episodes, but she is very well known in the grunge industry and in the music industry in Seattle. She was dating Chris Cornell, and her name is Susan Silver. And so Susan was brought on in 1986 to manage the band. So she was dating Chris, and then she was managing the band. And then also later on, she would go on to manage um, Alice in Chains and other such bands. So drummer Scott also left the band at this time to spend more time with his family, and he was then replaced with Skin Yards drummer Matt Cameron. One of their performances that they did in their earlier days really impressed local DJ Jonathan Poneman. Jonathan offered to fund an official release for the band. He just offered up money. He's like, listen, I like you guys a lot. I want to help make it official for you guys. So Kim suggests that DJ Jonathan Poneman team up with Bruce Pavitt to come together. So Poneman offered $2,000 for the startup of Sub Pop Records which made it, obviously, as we know, into a fully working record label. So that's how Sub Pop started, really, from the minds and the working power of Soundgarden. So the band, obviously, signed to Sub Pop Records, and their first release with Sub Pop was a song called Hunted Down in 1987. The B-side of the record, Nothing to Say, appeared on a compilation tape that was distributed around to other record companies. With Sub Pop as well, the band came out with the Screaming Life EP in 1987 and the Fop EP in 1988. And then they created a combination of the two EPs called Screaming Fop in 1990. According to Chris, Screaming Life was met with positive reviews, but no one really was taking a serious interest in the band. Fop was actually released on vinyl only and was limited to 3,000 copies. But yeah, so Chris was saying, like, these really early EPs, people just weren't latching on to their music. Like, the EPs did okay, but it didn't really go anywhere. But their music was being passed around between other record labels. And while a lot of these record labels were calling the band and they were asking them, like, hey, we want to make a contract with you guys. Will you come on to our record label? It's funny because these record labels were just calling up the place that the band was living in and Chris himself answered the phone to these companies and he was like uh no thanks we're good. Chris really 
wanted to keep the integrity of the band at the forefront. And so he really wanted to make sure that they stayed as independent as possible. That was his big dream. He really wanted to not go entirely mainstream. He wanted to make sure that he kept within that independent rock band type of persona. And I like that. Obviously, that changes later. But to have those intentions early on was really cool. So now we're moving into their actual debut album, Ultra Mega OK. At this point, Soundgarden eventually signed with SST Records, which is another independent label, in 1988. The album was recorded in the spring of 88 in Seattle and Newburgh, Oregon. During the recording process, the band wasn't really on the same page with producer Drew Canalette, or Canulette. Yeah, can you let? That sounds about right. <laughs> um, and a 1995 interview where Chris talks about this time in particular was, We made a huge mistake with Ultra Mega OK because we left our home surroundings and people we'd been involved with and used this producer that really did affect our album in a kind of negative way. The producer was suggested by SST because they could get a good deal. I regret it because in terms of material, it should have been one of the best records we ever did. It actually slowed our momentum a little bit because it didn't really sound like us. And so at this point, they really did regret signing with SST. They just weren't on the same page with the producer at all. But Ultra Mega OK was released on Halloween 1998. Mark Merriman directed the music video for their single Flower, which aired regularly on MTV. So that really became the big single of the album. And the band promoted the album with a tour in the U.S. during the spring of 89 and a European tour in May of 89 as well. Ultra Mega OK received a Grammy for Best Metal Performance in 1990, so while they considered it not really their best work for a debut album, it received a Grammy Award, so it did pretty well. But after their Ultra Mega OK tour, the band then signed with A&M Records. And A&M Records is a major record label. And this is what I mean, like they, they really tried to be as independent as possible, but they regretted signing with SST Records. They didn't think that it would be a bad business expenditure, but it became that way. And so they were kind of forced by their own hand in a way to then sign with a major record label. But A&M Records is featured with the other grunge bands too. Not all of them, but some of the other grunge bands that I already talked about, they were signed to A&M as well. So it wasn't really all bad, but the audience that they had accumulated over these years, they were really not a fan. This actually created a rift of why would you sign with a major record label? We want you to be as independent and punk as possible. And now you're like posers. You know how it goes. People will consider you a poser for changing your viewpoint, but they didn't really have a big, a big choice in the matter here. And so a quote from Kim on this decision was, In the beginning, our fans came from the punk rock crowd. They abandoned us when they thought we sold out the punk tenets, getting on a major label and touring with Guns N' Roses. There were fashion issues and social issues, and people thought we no longer belonged in their scene to their particular subculture. And right, and so grunge wasn't really even a, a forethought at this time. But it was a really, I would say, niche subculture at the time. And when you venture out of that, people will call you a lot of names. They don't think that you belong anymore. So that's unfortunate. 
that they had to deal with that from their own audience. But in 1990, Chris and Susan Silver got married. So that's at least a little bit of positivity coming out from this negativity. And so I'm sure a lot of you know Louder Than Love, their second album. The band signed on to A&M Records, as I said, to produce this record. Louder Than Love only took one month to record, so that's no time at all, from December 88 to January 89 at the London Bridge Studios in Seattle. Chris said, though, looking back on this time, that these recording sessions weren't as free-flowing as the Purious album sessions, so he had to write most of the material. He actually ended up writing seven of the 12 tracks on the album. While there was a lot of angst and frustration within the band, the overall experience as a whole was positive, looking back on it. Hero actually left the band after these recording sessions and he went back to college. He said that he wasn't really pleased with the fact that he, he thought he wasn't contributing a lot to the band. He felt like he had more to contribute, but he kind of couldn't, so he got fed up and he left. And so in terms of the production of the album, although Chris thought the end result was a bit too clean, he wouldn't change any of it though. So Louder Than Love was released on September 5th, 1989, and it peaked at number 108 on the Billboard 200. And this album actually burst the Loudest Love EP and the Louder Than Live home video that released in 1990. The three singles from the album were Loud Love, Hands All Over, and Get On The Snake, each with their own music videos. Loud Love was actually featured in the Wayne's World movie in 1992, so definitely look out for that one. And two little bits of information I thought were kind of interesting that I didn't really know. Kirk Hammond actually said he was inspired to write Enter Sandman after hearing Louder Than Love. So that's crazy. We all know Enter Sandman. That's probably like their biggest hit or one of their biggest hits. This little kind of cool, somewhat indie, I guess not really indie anymore, band from Seattle is coming out with their second album. And Kirk Hammond of Metallica is already coming out to be like, yeah, let's do this. And Guns N' Roses covered the song Big Dumb Sex on their 1993 album, The Spaghetti Incident. In 2001, Q Magazine named the album as one of the 50 heaviest albums of all time. Kim has said that the band wanted to actually call the album Louder Than Fuck, <laughs> which I kind of like, Louder Than Fuck. That's really funny. That's cool, actually. But Louder Than Love, I like that. A quote, actually, from Chris on the album name itself was, it's sort of making fun of heavy metal bravado. Metal bands would say Louder Than Thunder or something. So Louder Than Love, what is Louder Than Love? So when Hero left the band, he was replaced by Jason Everman who was actually one of the early members of Nirvana. And so with this lineup, they went on a North American tour for the album from December 89 to March 90. And so at this time, Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone, who I talked about in my Pearl Jam video, he was roommates with Chris Cornell at this time. And while actually Soundgarden was on this North American tour, Andrew Wood died on March 19, 1990. That was actually the day that the band got back from their tour. And so at this point on, Chris went on to form Temple of the Dog, which was a tribute to Andrew Wood. And I talked more about that in my Pearl Jam video, if you want to check that out. But we're moving right along to their other album, Bad Motor Finger, which is one of their bigger albums, I would say. In April 1990, bassist Ben Shepard actually replaced Jason Everman, and this new lineup recorded their third album. 
The band really appreciated what Ben brought to the table. Ben was considered to have a really fresh and creative approach to the recording sessions, and he had an extensive knowledge of music and skills with writing music that really helped define the band and helped shape the band and elevate them in a different way, so Ben was a big asset. Bad Motor Finger was recorded in the spring of 1991 at Studio D in California, Bear Creek Studios in Washington, and A&M Studios in L.A. They brought back producer Terry Date because of how much they really liked what he did with their Louder Than Love album, and they had a good relationship with him. And Kim jokingly called this album the heavy metal white album. On the opening song Rusty Cage, Kim used a wah pedal as an audio filter, producing a really heavy and quite unusual sound that wasn't really heard before. And they're known in their albums for using alternative tunings and odd time signatures to kind of experiment and play around with things a bit differently to kind of have that edge about them. Chris has said that he didn't want to get too specific with the lyrics on this album and to let it be about using the ambiguity of the lyrics to create more colorful images for the listener so they can come up with their own interpretation. And the album title, Bad Motor Finger, got its name as a joke on the Montrose song, Bad Motor Scooter. And the cover art for the album was created by guitarist Mark Dancy from the sub-pop band Big Chief. It features a jagged cyclone kind of design, and in the center is a triangle with the album's title containing a spark plug. A quote from Kim on the name of the album is, It was sort of off the top of my head. I simply like it because it was colorful. It was kind of aggressive too. It conjures up a lot of different kinds of images. We like the ambiguity in it, the way it sounded and the way it looked. Bad Motor Finger was released on September 24th, 1991. It peaked at number 39 on the Billboard 200 chart in 1992. And crazy enough, it was actually released about one month after Pearl Jam's 10, and on the same day as Nirvana's Nevermind and Red Hot Chili Peppers' album Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Can you believe this time in music history, 1992, where all these albums came out at once? What a time to be alive! So all these releases, kind of around the same time, really helped push alternative rock and grunge into the mainstream. Bad Motor Finger sold over a million copies in the early 90s and went platinum in 1993 and double platinum in 96. Singles from the album included Jesus Christ Pose, Outshined, and Rusty Cage. These songs had a lot of major airplay on rock radio stations. The song Jesus Christ Pose had a bit of controversy surrounding it. The music video was pulled from MTV for its widespread controversy about religion. So people were saying that this song was considered anti-Christian. They were seeing the music video, they were listening to the lyrics, but they weren't really listening to the lyrics because if they really heard what they were talking about, it would be kind of obvious. Chris mentioned that the song is actually about celebrities using religion as a crutch and using it as like a front for their own gain. It wasn't anything anti-Christian or satanic or anything like that, which is just absolutely wild. It's very reminiscent to me of the Beatles when John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. <laughs> and so people were like, you know, burning the Beatles albums. It's very reminiscent of that. People are so touchy about religion, but I'm not going there. I'm just kind of, you know, saying what I'm seeing right here. 
And what's crazy was on their European tour for the album, because of this anti-Christian narrative people were thinking that the song was about, the band actually received death threats in the UK while on tour. How crazy is that? Like, like that's just mind-blowing to me that people can be so, what's the word I'm looking for? High-strung or something about this whole religion thing about the song. The album, though, did receive a Grammy nomination in 1992 for Best Metal Performance, and following the release, the band went on a North American tour during October and November of 91. After this tour, the band was asked, personally asked, by Guns N' Roses to be their opener for their Use Your Illusion tour. They went on tour with Guns N' Roses, and then they toured with Skid Row, actually, in February 1992 for their Slave to the Grind tour, and then they went back and they toured again with Guns N' Roses for some time. And then in 1992, they played at the Lollapalooza Festival, which is just another major festival and another major show that really put the band in the forefront. They're playing with Guns N' Roses. They're playing with Skid Row. They're playing with all these major bands. And so can you imagine their really early audience being so against this that they thought that they were posers or something? But whatever. I mean, this is what happens with bands. They, they are once indie, and they might not always be indie anymore. I mentioned this Cameron Crowe 1992 movie singles with my Alice in Chains and my Pearl Jam episodes. And so I mentioned, I might have mentioned actually, but I believe I did, that Soundgarden also contributed to the movie with their song Birth Ritual and a song written by Chris called Seasons. And Chris made a couple appearances actually in the movie, so. It's just all the big, like, crunch family within that movie. It's pretty funny. So now we're getting into their album, Super Unknown, and Soundgarden began working on Super Unknown after these Bad Motor Finger tours. While working on the album, the band allowed themselves a bit more freedom than compared to their previous albums, and a lot more time was spent working on and recording the songs. They did switch their producers just for a bit of change and went with Michael Beinhorn, who didn't have his own specific sound that he would put into Soundgarden, meaning he didn't have his own producing sound that would change the sound that Soundgarden wanted to put out massively. These recording sessions took place from July to September 1993 at Bad Animal Studios in Seattle. The resident engineer for Bad Animal Studio, Adam Casper, went on to help Michael Beinhorn on the production of this album. Casper would be used on future Soundgarden albums too. They focused on recording one part at a time for each song, which was a big difference from how they used to do it. So first they would record the drums and the bass, and then Chris and Kim would add their parts to it. They experimented with different production elements such as layering, which added to the overall huge, big, booming, massive sound of this album. And so between these recording sessions, the band took a break, and they toured with Neil Young for 10 days for a few of his own shows. And then upon coming back, the band brought on Brendan O'Brien, who worked for Pearl Jam previously. I had mentioned Brendan O'Brien before. So they brought him on to continue to mix the album. And he actually came highly recommended by Stone Gossard. They took a more experimental approach with their sound this time around on this album. But overall, in terms of all of their music, they're definitely a bit more different and experimental for sure. They even stated that there's a Beatles influence to some of these songs on Super Unknown, which is, which is interesting too. Kim said in a 1994 interview, 
We looked deep down inside the very core of our souls, and there was a little Ringo sitting there. Oh, sure, we were telling people it's John Lennon or George Harrison. But when you really look deep inside of Soundgarden, there's a little Ringo wanting to get out. I thought that was a really funny quote, like, nah, there's a little Ringo inside all of us. <laughs> and so with Super Unknown, this album was really, really, really important. You could consider this album like Nirvana's Nevermind or Alice in Chains' Dirt album. It actually really transcended and redefined what grunge even meant. But there's an interview where Chris and Kim reflect back on grunge and what grunge even means. They honestly didn't even know, and they at the time didn't even really know what grunge was. Even reflecting back on this time, they're like, I'm not even sure what grunge even means. Like, we were just bands from Seattle just hanging around making music. Like, we didn't consider ourselves grunge at all. Like, that label was just put on them by everyone else. And so they were just making their own music, doing whatever they wanted to do. They weren't considering, oh, well, let's make this album as grunge as possible. They were just doing what they wanted to do. And it so happened to get the label of one of the most famous grunge albums of all time. That's not what they were setting out to achieve. So actually what's interesting is the song title, Spoon Man, on the album, right? This one of the singles on this album came from Pearl Jam's bassist, Jeff Ament. So like I mentioned before, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, they were a part of this movie, singles, Cam and Crow's movie. So while on the set of this movie, Jeff came up with a list of songs for a fictional band in the movie called Citizen Dick. He was creating a bunch of songs for that band just for fun. Chris took it as a challenge to write songs for the film using those titles Jeff came up with, and Spoon Man was one of them. So Spoon Man came from those earlier times, which is really cool. And an acoustic version of Spoon Man actually plays in the movie, so if you haven't seen the movie before, I would, I would recommend watching it. it. It really wasn't that bad. Um, it was pretty decent. So the album cover is a warped photo of the band created by Kevin Westenberg, and a quote from Chris on the album artwork is, Super Unknown relates to birth in a way, being born or even dying, getting flushed into something that you know nothing about. The hardest thing is to nail down a visual image to put on a title like that. The first thing we thought of was a forest in gray or black. Soundgarden has always associated with images of flowers and lush colors, and this was the opposite. I was into these stories as a kid where forests were full of evil and scary things, as opposed to being happy gardens that you go camping in. Super Unknown is considered the band's breakout album, actually, even though they've produced three albums before this one. Again, the other albums were popular, but they didn't really break out massively and even really worldwide until this album. Super Unknown was released on March 8, 1994, and it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 album charts, and it was the 13th best-selling album of the year selling 2.5 million copies. It's been certified five times platinum in the US, three times platinum in Canada, and gold in the UK, Sweden, and Netherlands. So it goes to show, even on their other albums that are very popular, they didn't debut that high on the Billboard 200. This one was number one. That goes to show this album really is, I would say, maybe more ingrained in people's minds, possibly, just because of the songs that are on here. So singles from the album are Spoon Man, which I mentioned before, The Day I Tried to Live, 
Black Hole Sun, which we all know, My Wave, and Fell on Black Days. So it makes sense that this album was considered their kind of big breakout album. Black Hole Sun, the music video for it, was a major hit on MTV, and it received an award for Best Metal Slash Hard Rock Video at the 1994 MTV Video Music Awards. And the song also won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance, and Spoonman received a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. So after this point, they began touring for the album in January to February 1994 in Oceania and Japan, where the album came out early for those countries. In March, they did a full European tour and a full U.S. tour. And then later on that year, too, Chris was actually seen by doctors who told him that he damaged his voice with severe strain. And so we all know Chris's voice. It's very poignant. And he is known for his screaming and his high-pitched, you know, really pushing hard on his vocal cords. And so he would say that he would, you know, push really hard to get another note and then another higher note. And then it would open up to get another higher note. And then obviously all of these shows, you know, really close together, you have no time to rest your voice. And so he really strained his voice. So the band were kind of scared. They were like, all right. We have to stop all these shows coming up now because we don't want Chris's voice to be permanently damaged. So obviously, at this point, they canceled the shows. His voice started to heal. So things were fine. A quote from Chris on this experience was, I think we kind of overdid it. We were playing five or six nights a week and my voice pretty much took a beating. Towards the end of the American tour, I felt like I could still kind of sing, but I wasn't really giving the band a fair shake. You don't buy a ticket to see some guy croak for two hours that seemed like kind of a ripoff. Which that's really, that's really like reflective of him to think about that. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't want my fans to pay a lot of money to see us and I'm singing up there and I'm like croaking away. But eventually in the following year, 1995, the band made up these canceled shows. So all was fine. And so while the band was really skyrocketing into mainstream popularity at this time too, It's very notable to mention that Chris's mental health was in a really steep decline, struggling even more with his anxiety and depression. Because obviously, the more in the forefront of people's minds that you're in, and you're on TV all the time, on MTV, and you're on magazine covers, and you're considered like one of the faces of this grunge movement, And all of this pressure is put on you when he already had these mental illnesses previously, they get exacerbated now. At this point in time, he was turning back to alcohol and drugs to self-medicate. And so this is also another reason why this album in particular was pretty dark in undertone compared to the previous albums. But I feel bad for Chris. I do. I mean, we've seen it with... Kurt Cobain, and we've seen it with Lane Staley too, you know, that they're the faces of the bands that they're a part of. They're getting all this mainstream attention and having their drug issues and their mental illnesses being put on the forefront. It's making it worse when what you should have done is take a step back. Even even Scott Weiland, I could put in there too with his drug addictions as well. You have so much lamenting pressure on you for whatever reason, maybe, you know, whatever the reason is to keep on performing while you're going through 
these addictions and these mental illnesses, you keep on pushing through, but it makes it worse for you and it makes it worse for the audience because they have to see that. You know what I mean? So I feel for Chris and I feel for any addict in any band that is really struggling and they just keep on going. That's so not easy to deal with. You know, they're human beings. They probably never imagined that they would get this popular. You know what I mean? It wasn't their goal to be like the most famous band of all time. It's like, how do you cope with life? How do you cope with your private life and your public life? That's the struggle that Chris was going through at this time. And so now we're following up on their other album, Down on the Upside. They were starting to do this after their worldwide tours. You know, the band went back into the studio. And this album would be the last album that they would make for over 15 years. And what's interesting is they actually chose to produce the record themselves, which is different. Chris and Kim were getting into arguments over Chris wanting to shy away from the heavy guitar riffing that became the band's kind of trademark. So tensions were really arising even more at this point in time. But Down on the Upside was released on May 21st, 1996. It was definitely less hard rock focused and it shifted away from the band's earlier grunge roots. And again, this notion of experimenting with different sounds and styles in studio was really important for them. And despite moderately positive reviews on this album, the projected sales didn't really match what Super Unknown had made. Metallica actually insisted on having Soundgarden play for the 1996 Lollapalooza tour. And then after the show, they went on a massive worldwide tour as well. And the tensions were just building upon building upon building until the point where they broke up. Their last show in Hawaii on February 9th, 1997, Ben threw his bass in the air after frustrations with malfunctioning equipment, and he stormed off of the stage. And so officially, on April 9th, 1997, the band had enough. They couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't do it anymore. They called it quits. And they'll call it quits for a very, very, very long time. There wasn't really a dull moment with Chris Cornell, because as we know, during this breakup, he came out with Audio Slave. So even before Audio Slave, though, Chris went on to release a solo album in September of 99 called Euphoria Morning. And then in 2001, he went on to form the mega successful supergroup Audio Slave with former members of Rage Against the Machine. And so they had three albums, Audio Slave, which came out in 2002, their most popular, most successful. Out of Exile came out in 2005 and Revelations came out in 2006. Chris said that the first Audio Slave album came out a really interesting time in his life where he was in a very, very bad place, which makes sense. Again, Soundgarden breaks up, he's dealing with his mental issues, his mental illnesses, and he's in his addictions, and it's a very not-so-great environment. But looking back on this experience, he said because he was able to pull himself out of this bad place, he sees it as a triumphing moment. But so, after coming out with these three albums, Audio Slave broke up in 2007. So he went on to create more solo work. And Chris's second solo album, Carry On, was released on June 2007. And his third album, Scream, was released in March 2009 to kind of mixed reviews. Chris also wrote the lyrics and gave vocals for the song Promise on Slash's debut solo album called Slash in 2010. So he was just putting out a lot of music. He was putting a lot of his energy into music. Even though he had these issues, 
He wasn't going to let it drag him down. He was very concerned, very focused on making sure music was one of the forefronts in his life, one of the most important things. And so in this time too, Chris went on to have daughter Lillian Jean. We know her as Lily. She's been on the internet kind of doing these interviews um, on her social medias. And she was born June 2000. Susan and Chris, however, divorced in 2004. So Lillian is the daughter of Susan Silver. I probably should have mentioned that before. So at this time, between Lily was born and their divorce in 2004, their marriage was just really, really, really falling apart, probably because of Chris's drug addictions. So trying to deal with his marriage falling apart, he turned to Oxycontin and other drugs to help cope with daily life. And so Chris actually says about this time in his life was, I went through a serious crisis with depression where I didn't eat a whole meal every day. I was just kind of shutting down. I eventually found that the only way out of that was to change virtually everything in my life. That was a very frightening thing to do, but it was worthwhile. And so I like that Chris has the mindset that some addicts don't get to until it's too late. Or some addicts never get to that mindset where he was very aware, self-aware of his life and how he could take a turn for the worse with his drug addiction. He couldn't do that. He couldn't keep doing that to himself. He made it a point to try and make a serious attempt at getting clean. He's, he checked into rehab in 2002, which is amazing. So he went in there and for a long time, for a very long time, up until his death, He was very sober, very clean, which is nice. So like I mentioned, in 2004, him and his first wife, Susan Silver, divorced. Also in 2004, this is where he married his second wife, Vicky. And him and Vicky had a daughter named Tony in September 2004. And they had a son, Christopher, in December 2005. So he was really cutting out these negative influences in his life. And he was making it a point to help other addicts and to encourage them to get sober as well. So much so that in May 2007, Chris was honored with the Stevie Ray Vaughan Award for his dedication and support of the Music Cares MAP Fund, which is a nonprofit. And it sets in place to help musicians in times of crisis, you know, like financially or they don't have, you know, suitable living or situations like that. And he won the award for his devotion for helping other addicts through the recovery process. And funny enough, this award was presented by Alice Cooper. And a really important quote that I want to mention that Chris said about how he beat his addictions is such. It was a long period of coming to the realization that this way, sober, is better. Going through rehab honestly did help. It got me away from just the daily drudgery of depression and either trying to not drink or do drugs or doing them, and, you know, they give you such a simple message that any idiot can get, and it's just over and over. But the bottom line is really, and this is the part that is scary for everyone, the individual kind of has to want it. Not kind of, you have to want it. And to not do that crap anymore, or you will never stop, and it will just kill you. There's nothing you can do. If your best friend has a problem and it's very serious, There's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And it was sad for me and the people around me. Sad for me when friends of mine died because of it. And yeah, that quote is so poignant. And he's right. You can't help an addict unless they want to help themselves and they see that they need help. Unfortunately, for some people, it was too late. Obviously, you had Andrew Wood in his life that died of a heroin overdose. 
You had Lane Staley that died of a heroin overdose. You had Kurt Cobain that died of suspicious circumstances surrounding drugs. It's just kind of piling on to the point where it got to be too much for him. It was lamenting and it was like kind of fermenting and stewing in his brain and he couldn't take it anymore. He saw the light and he understood what he needed to do and he got his life in order, which it's just, it's so bittersweet that he went through rehab and he made it out on the other side, but then he died. So sad. And so that's kind of what he was doing during the breakup of Soundgarden, you know, keeping very busy and doing a lot for other people, being very selfless, putting out music. So now, years later, in 2010, the band alluded to a reunion coming within the year. So this is where we get their albums Telephantasm and King Animal. So Telephantasm, a retrospective is what it was called, was basically just a compilation album from some of Soundgarden's previous songs. Um, It wasn't like a full new album with new material. It was just a compilation album. But still, it was new material that hadn't come out since 1997 from Soundgarden. So that's something, at least. Telephantasm released September 28th, 2010. And their song Black Rain appeared on Guitar Hero, which achieved platinum certification within a day of its release. So that's crazy within one day. That is unbelievable. And then their official return album, King Animal, was to be delayed until 2012, but they were hard at work on the material and creating it behind the scenes. Finally, on November 13th, 2012, the album was released. In 2014, Matt Cameron announced that he wouldn't be touring with Soundgarden that year due to previous commitments with Pearl Jam on their Lightning Bolt album, which makes sense. He was with Pearl Jam at the time, too. Former Pearl Jam drummer Matt Chamberlain was Matthew Cameron's replacement for these tours that Soundgarden was doing in 2014. And then they also released another compilation box set that included live tracks and unreleased material. So they were kind of just steadily getting back into putting out compilations and new material and touring when they could. Um, Between 2015 and 2016, the band had made several announcements and updates on them working on another album. But unfortunately, this would not really go anywhere. On May 18th, 2017, Chris Cornell was found dead in his hotel room at the MGM Grand Hotel following a show they did that very night. And I'm certain that a lot of you maybe have seen some of the footage on YouTube that's been floating around for years. Um, You know, people seem to think that Chris looks really out of it. People uh, have seen in the footage that he has a bit of like um, alopecia or some kind of um, injury to his head where there's like bald spots or something. Who knows what the situation was? People seem to think that they're pushing the narrative that he got back on drugs and he was fucked up. I'm not going to go too in depth on his death because there's also a conspiracy around his death. People think that he was murdered. Similarly to Kurt Cobain, they think he was murdered and that he couldn't have possibly killed himself in the manner of which Chris died. Because Chris was six foot three and 180 pounds. You know what I mean? Like, he was tall and he was fit. And so the manner of which he died was with a resistance exercise band around his neck in his bathroom. That's where he was found in his bathroom. The whole situation, people think he was murdered. He couldn't have done it. You can make up your own decision on what you think about it. I have my own personal opinion. 
And so we won't go into semantics, but, you know, obviously, if you want to learn a lot more about his death, you definitely can research all of that. Not only, actually, is there a conspiracy with Chris Cornell's death, but as some of you actually might know, he was really good friends with Chester Bennington. He was the lead singer of Linkin Park, and he died mysteriously as well around Chris Cornell's birthday. I believe that's what it was sometime after Chris's death. So, you know, there's a big conspiracy about that. It goes it goes deep of like a cover-up conspiracy, not as deep as um Kurt's because Kurt really is focused more on the immediate people around him, you know, i.e. uh Courtney, <laughs> you know, that were part of his death, but Chris Cornell's death is is more of a bigger picture kind of cover-up. It would be nice to just remember these people as they were instead of how they died. But obviously, it's a big part of Soundgarden's story. Because after Chris's death, the band wasn't really sure what they wanted to do, if they wanted to keep going. Like Alice in Chains, sometime after Lane's death, they brought on William Duvall as the lead singer, and they have kept making albums. People weren't sure about it at first, but they were accepting. So Soundgarden just wasn't sure what they wanted to do, but they did officially retire the name Soundgarden in October of 2018. What the band was trying to do in 2019, they were trying to get back and finish the last album that they were doing with Chris before he died. Unfortunately, and for some reason, the master files of Chris's vocals were withheld from the band. Now, I don't know if that's a specific issue with Vicky, his wife. I know that there was a bit of a battle and dispute with Vicky and Soundgarden. Um, afterwards, there's a lot of just clashing heads and fighting and pettiness. And so that's kind of where we have it. There's not a whole lot that's been going on since then. They left us a lot of music, and Chris has left us with a lot of amazing music, and his voice will live on forever. With his daughters, because his daughters, Tony, and his daughter, Lily, they've been doing music too. Lily, I know, was part of the Mopop Seattle, what was that? Mopop Seattle rock celebration that happened last year, I believe, for Alice in Chains. But she performed Black Gives Way to Blue, and her performance was so beautiful. And Tony Cornell as well, his other daughter with his wife, Vicky, she's been doing music too. She looks just like Chris, dude. Oh my God. And, and, and Lillian, she looks just like Chris. It's just so nice to see. His children are really smart, really cool people. So that's nice to see that they're kind of living for him in a really nice way. And so I think that's where I'm going to end it on that note. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you guys have a really nice day. I'll be back next week with more, but hope you guys have a nice day and I will definitely see you guys later. Bye guys.